0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for October 9th, 2020. As always, thank you for checking out the podcast. I hope you and yours are doing well. Uh, If you like this interview uh, and you want to hear more interviews like this, you want to read more about Uh, What's happening in the world, and especially uh, U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world, for better or very often for worse, uh, please check out foreign exchanges at Substack, .substack fx.substack.com. I do a newsletter and this podcast, which is usually just for subscribers. Those episodes are just me talking about stuff. Uh, But anytime we are lucky enough to be joined by a guest, uh, those podcasts are free to the public. Uh, This week, uh, we are very lucky to be joined by Jessica Moody, uh, who is a PhD candidate at King's College London, focusing on... uh, Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, uh, post-conflict Cote d'Ivoire, uh, and she's going to be she's going to be joining me by Skype all the way from London uh, to talk about the political situation uh, in Cote d'Ivoire right now, where the incumbent president Alassane Ouattara uh, is running for a third term, uh, which is technically unconstitutional. Uh, he has finagled himself a bit of a loophole, legal loophole, uh, whereby he insists that a that the constitutional referendum uh, that Cote d'Ivoire held in 2016 uh, reset his term limit counter, enabling him to run again, despite having already uh, been elected twice and served two terms. Uh, the Ivoirian constitutional court agrees with him, uh, making his candidacy legal, although the Ivorian constitutional court is somewhat uh, has been appointed. Most of its members, I think, have been appointed by Ouattara, so its rulings uh, can and are being questioned by a lot of opposition leaders, opposition figures. Uh, the announcement that Ouattara was running for a third term—he was initially going to stand aside for his prime minister. We'll talk about that in the interview. There was an unforeseen complication with that plan. Uh, and the announcement that Watara is standing for third term has led to some protests. It's led to a resurfacing, I think, generally speaking, of a lot of tensions that have been very present uh, in Ivoirian politics for uh, at least the last couple of decades, going back into the 1990s, uh, that surfaced uh, you know, for example, in full-blown civil war in the uh, early 2000s and kind of uh, up to 2010, 2011. Uh, so Jessica is going to be here to help us kind of uh, recap, recount uh, that history and the tensions that are at play here uh, and to offer her views on, on where she expects, what she expects to happen in the election, which will be held, uh, the first round will be held on October 31st. Uh, There will be a runoff if necessary. Uh, Something tells me it's not going to be necessary. Uh, But we will see. Uh, She's going to offer her uh, take on what's going to happen in the election and what that may, what the implications of that uh, will be for Cote d'Ivoire moving forward. Uh, So I'm going to get her on the line and we will start the interview. All right. As I noted in the introduction, uh, I'm being joined all the way from merry old England uh, by (laughs) Jessica Moody, who is a PhD candidate focusing on post-conflict Cote d'Ivoire in the War Studies Department. That sounds very cool. (laughs) The War Studies Department at King's College, London. Uh, Jessica, thank you for uh, being on the show. Thanks for having uh, me. To help take us through a little of uh, what's going on in the Ivory Coast lately.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So uh, I thought we should start. This is a story, sort of the, the upcoming elections and uh, the issues related to uh, President Watara's decision finally to run for a third term is something I've been covering in um, my newsletters, but I thought maybe we should start for people who uh, aren't keeping up with their reading <laughs> uh, we should start with uh, just kind of if you could just give us sort of an overview uh, of where things stand right now and what is the the sort of controversy here and and uh, you know how are things looking as we kind of head into the election later this month.
1: Sure. Um, so I guess the most controversial thing about the upcoming election is that Wattera, um the the head of the ruling party and the and the current president, he. Um, announced earlier this year that he would not stand for a third term, um, and that he would hand over power to the next generation. Um, and he had designated Amadou Goncoulibaly, um, to be, uh, the nominee for, for the RHDP, um, and this was met with kind of, uh, international approval. Everyone was really grateful that he decided that he would not stand for a third term. Um, and I mean, even a lot of Ivorians who, who are very much opposed to Watara and, and to his government were, were praising the move. Um, and this all seemed great. <laughs> um, and then, uh, until, until Amanu Valley died, um, pretty unexpectedly, um, he'd had a couple of heart problems, um, but nobody really saw that coming. Um, he went to France um, around the time that coronavirus started kicking off uh, for some treatment. He had a stent put in. Um, and then when he came back to Cote d'Ivoire, he was attending a meeting and he, he, he died shortly afterwards. Um, and this kind of threw the whole election into into disarray. Um, and it went from being one where everyone thought, OK, the risk of, of there being serious unrest is kind of being averted by the fact that Watter is not going to stand for the third term. To suddenly oh my god who is who is the ruling party going to put forward as their candidate um and as it turned out <laughs> whater hadn't really got a plan b um and there wasn't really anybody else available for him to um i mean there were a couple of potential candidates but nobody that Wattera trusted enough to really pass power onto um and he'd kind of been grooming Abidugon for for some time to be the to be the sort of succession candidate um And so then we were left with, okay, well, the election is coming up quickly now. Um, And Watter was kind of worried about like what the opposition was doing. And um, there weren't really too many other options. And so he decided that he would after all stand for this third term, um, which is, according to the opposition, um, a violation of the constitution, which says you can only stand for two terms. Um, Watter and the ruling party say that that's actually not the case. Um, although the constitution does say that you can only stand for two terms, term limits were reset in 2016 when there was a, um, constitutional, uh, or a new constitution was introduced. Um, and so this allows him to stand for his sort of final term, um, from 2020. Um, so now you have an election where water is going forward to be, to be the candidate, um for his very controversial third term and we recently had the constitutional court rule that 40 of the 44 candidates uh, that were in line to stand in this election um, were not viable um, but Watterer, who whose candidacy is obviously deeply controversial was allowed to stand um, and so this kind of created the sense that the constitutional court was deeply biased in favor of the government um, allowing Watterer's candidacy to go ahead but not some of his major rivals, um, and indeed, you know, 40 other candidates, um, and his major rivals happened to include the former president of Cote d'Ivoire, Laurent Bagbo, um, and um, the former head of, of a rebel movement um, that ruled the north of the country from 2002 to 2011, the um, Force Nouvelle, um, and his name was Guillaume Soro. Um, and so the ruling out of these two major opposition candidates, as well as everybody else. Um, so there's, o- there's only four candidates um, going forward to this election now. Um, and this just kind of added to the sense that this election is already kind of rigged in favor of the government. Um, is now, yeah, he's, he's going into this election already kind of very much with the upper hand. Um, there's long been a sense that the electoral commission, the only other institution charged with overseeing this election, um, is also biased in favor of the government. Um, and so yeah, we we head into the thirty first of October when this election will be held. Um, with with bated breath, I guess. Um, I get the sense that the stage is very much set for for there to be some sort of violence.
0: There have already been some protests already. Is that right? How how deeply, like how how much, uh, sort of tension have we already seen kind of break out? And and what are the sort of concerns uh, I, is there a concern that, uh, things could get really bad after the election
1: um certainly yeah i think um so when wetter announced in august that he would stand after all for a third term um there were protests that broke out um, in several cities around cote d'ivoire um and these led to the deaths of uh 15 people um the government ruled that um protests could no longer take place um at least until um, i think it's like the middle of october now um and you know, basically what happened was the the people who were opposed to a third term launched demonstrations and people who supported Watara um attacked them. Um there were sort of counter demonstrations. Um and, you know, it, it sort of rapidly escalated into intercommunal violence, um, burning down of, of restaurants, tyre burning, um and Amnesty International actually accused the government of sending in Sort of quasi militias to put down some of the demonstrations that were happening in Abidjan. Um, these were just kind of men armed with with machetes, um, being used by the government to to end these demonstrations. Um, and I think that's the kind of violence that we're likely to see much more of as we get closer to the election. And that's the kind of violence that has typified Ivorian politics for some time. Um, it's this kind of localized clashes between ethnic groups in areas that are, are particularly volatile. Um, and i mean so uh, local elections were held in in october 2018 and that led to, to very similar kind of violence as well um two people were died and uh, two people died in that um outbreak of violence um i would say that i think that the the violence that's likely to take place after the election is is going to be similar i don't really see the the protests kind of coalescing into something much greater or something much more organized or cohesive that could actually throw a pose a threat to the government i think um it's likely to continue to be this kind of very violent but very localized um, intercommunal clashes. the The opposition doesn't seem yet to have that kind of um, cohesion that, that could really pose a threat to the government.
0: So I want to I want to ask you to kind of walk us through the last at least couple of decades, let's say, of <laughs> of uh, uh, politics in the Ivory Coast, and and sort of to help. Uh, help us understand what some of the underlying tensions uh, are about. Uh, Watara is the fifth uh, president that Cote d'Ivoire has had since independence uh, that's fudging a little bit because one of them was actually a very temporary junta, kind of military leader. Um, But take us back to sort of... um, you know the the emergence from independence, and then uh, the first president uh, of Ivory Coast after independence, Felix Houphouet Boigny, ruled for you know thirty three years, I think, until his death in nineteen ninety three. Um, so the the concept of kind of um, holding elections and transitioning power um is is a fairly new one is that is that fair to say as far as I, uh ivorian politics are concerned
1: uh sure i think elections have always been very contentious in cote d'ivoire um i think i guess the fact that if Boigny was in power as you say for, for so long without really holding elections and, and cote d'ivoire was very much a one-party state i think um the transformation into multi-party politics has been. A long one, and um, has been uh, very tumultuous for Cote d'Ivoire. Um, I think it's something that the country is still kind of coming to terms with. Um, so essentially, I guess the the tensions of of the, the tensions that have led to to what we see going on in Cote d'Ivoire today, I think, as you rightly say, they kind of come from from the the post independence president. I think everything kind of stems from from his government um, and how um, how that transition to multi-party politics has taken place. Um, was, um, a very kind of unifying president. Um, he, he tried to bring all of the the numerous ethnic groups that exist in Cote d'Ivoire under one roof. Um, he tried to say that, you know, they were Ivorian and they were not, um, they did, they did, they belonged to Cote d'Ivoire before they belonged to the, the ethnic group that they were affiliated with. Um, and so, um, you know, he encouraged everybody to learn to speak French rather than speaking their, their ethnic language um, so that there would be kind of um, countrywide communication um, and that there would be some sort of national identity. Um, and I guess, it, you know, that's a really nice idea. And, and for a long time, it worked, worked really well. Um, the problem was that he, he encouraged this kind of mass migration of northern Ivorians and um, of anyone who had the the capacity um, to migrate into um, the south, <coughs> excuse me, and the south and the uh, west of Cote d'Ivoire, where all the cocoa plantations were, um, and he wanted to to really make the most of of the cocoa in Cote d'Ivoire and, and to um, encourage a kind of booming economy. Um, which was a policy that worked quite well for quite a long time. Um, you had a huge number of Northern Ivorians and um, burkinabe people and Malians who migrated um, to the cocoa plantations, um, and they worked on the farms there. Um, the, the cocoa economy in Cote d'Ivoire was booming, um, and everything was going really well. The country seemed um, to be far in advance of, of most other West African countries at the time. Um, the big problem came when the cocoa price crashed in the 1980s um, and you were suddenly left with all of those people who had gone to work in the cities and they lost their jobs and Cote d'Ivoire fell into this massive recession. And suddenly the cocoa farms were, you know, like everyone wanted them back. Um, the people who were uh, from the south and the west of Cote d'Ivoire, they wanted the land back that they'd been kind of renting out to um, northerners and um uh Malians and Burkinyabe people. Um and so suddenly there were there were these enormous clashes over um land ownership. Um, not least because Ufwe Bunye had said that, you know, he, he infamously made the claim that the land belongs to those who put it to good use. Um, and this really encouraged a kind of sort of informal power uh, land grab. Um so people were just taking over land um without there being um, legal land rights, um, accrued to them. So, uh, when, when people wanted their land back, there weren't really legal mechanisms for them to do that. Um, and there was a lot of confusion over who actually owned the land. You know, if you'd been farming it for the last 20 years, while well, the person whose land it initially was, went to, um, went to the city to go and uh, find another job, then who did that land actually belong to? Um, and it it was no longer really clear, um, and people in the South and the West of the country just sort of increasingly referred to these immigrants into their, their part of the country as, as people who weren't actually Ivorian. Um, and so you had this kind of problem brewing, um, as Ufwe Boigny came to the end of his presidency. Um, and then, yeah, he died in 1993. Um, and Henri Conan Bedier, who happens to be, um, one of the candidates for, um, the election now in 2020, um, he took over the country in 1993, um, and he really didn't make the situation any better. Um, in fact, he capitalized on the fact that there was so much resentment growing in the South and the West of the country towards, um, Northern Ivorians, um, and, and the immigrants. Um, and he created this, this politics of exclusion, um, and, uh, in fact, create this policy called Ivorite. Um, which essentially meant that, you know, among other things, unless you had two parents who were born in Côte d'Ivoire, you could not be, you could not be president of of Côte d'Ivoire. Um, but not right. only. in that. Sorry, I'm sorry.
0: The the I mean that that law uh, becomes an important thing here because it's passed right before the 1995 election when uh, Bedier is going to be running against. Watara and Watara does not have two parents who are both born in uh, Ivory Coast. Uh, Plus, I I think he didn't meet the residency requirement because he'd been working for the IMF. Uh, How much of that law was specifically to kind of (laughs) undercut the presidential candidacy of this one person uh, versus kind of a reflection of the the bigger tensions that were going on?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's both. Like, I think that law throughout Ivorian history has been used to exclude Ouattara from standing for for presidential elections, um, but I think that that's not uh, that's not the sole purpose of Ivorite. I think Ivorite was a much bigger attempt to try and gain popularity among sort of groups of Ivorians who who were referred to as kind of indigenous Ivorians, um, and uh, yeah, those from the the center of the country and those from the south and the west, um, and uh, you know, sort of capitalise on, on the feeling among those people that their land had been taken from them by immigrants and people who weren't actually Ivorian. And Enrico Nambidia, he just he saw that there was so much resentment towards these people. And he, he saw that that was the best way to make himself into a, a popular president. Um, And he, he really capitalised on that. I mean, northern Ivorians were, were forced to carry identity cards with them. And they were treated really badly by by um, security personnel. Um you know, like they they really suffered under under the presidency of, of Bedier and then subsequently um, of Bagba.
0: What are, aside from sort of, you know, issues of immigration and land use, are there other vectors for this sort of sense of, uh, I guess, nationalism that's kind of shifted into a, a kind of xenophobia? I I know, for example um you know there's a religious demography shift that's happened in in, in Cote d'Ivoire where you know at independence uh, Christians were far and away the majority but that's changed due both to sort of uh you know birth rates communal birth rates and and to immigration uh and muslim the muslim population is much larger now than it was I don't know what the percentages are um how, and, and, but part of that, you know, one of the other things I want to sort of uh ask you about here is, is uh, were there, um, you know, to some extent this became, seems like it became a north-south divide. And yet there are northern, there are populations in northern Cote d'Ivoire uh, that are indigenous, as far as anybody can tell, at least to that region. Did they get swept up in this as well? Like how, you know, what was the um what was the practical impact on on those communities
1: um i think the north south divide that exists is uh very much a function of the fact that you know so from 2002 when um uh, there was a a failed coup attempt um on um bagbo's presidency um then you had uh these rebel groups take over the north um and they ruled that that northern part of the country until 2010 Um, And so the country was sort of literally divided in two um, and that, that created this North South divide. Um, But there, I mean, the ethnic groups that exist in Cote d'Ivoire are very, um, very spread out. And like, you don't just have, you know, the North is not solely uh, Jula or Sanufa people there, you know, there are other ethnic groups that exist in in the North. um, And just as there are many, many ethnic groups that exist in the South and it's not just, you know, the main ones that you hear talked about um, in terms of, um, the supporters of Bedier being Baole and the supporters of uh, Bagbo being um, Bete and Gere people, um, you know, the, these ethnic groups are spread all over the country. And I think it would be very simplistic to say that, you know, the the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire is merely a, um, uh, a division between the north and the south. Um, and I think in terms of religion, I would say that actually, what's interesting about the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire is that as much as the um the north has typically belonged much more to uh more sort of Islamic populations and, and the south was was typically much more Christian. Um I don't think the religion really played that much role in in the conflict that took place in Côte d'Ivoire and and even to this day I wouldn't say that it's a, a massive factor. I think um ethnic ethnic groups are much more important in terms of like which uh political candidate you will vote for. Um and uh, when I've been working in Côte d'Ivoire and when I've spoken to people about um the way that um, the violence took place after the 2010-2011 election and, and during the conflict between 2002-2010, um, people will always make the point that, you know, that that violence could easily have taken on a kind of religious hue, um, and yet it never did. Um, people were kind of, like the, the imams um, and the priests, were, were very careful to try and protect people from, from that kind of dynamic. Um, um, and there are a lot of cases of, you know, people taking refuge inside inside churches, people allowing uh, Muslims to come into churches to take refuge. Um, those kind of situations were quite sort of um quite common and, and people are quite keen to point out that this was never really a religious conflict. Um I think it was always very political and the sort of political mobilization of, of ethnic antagonisms, um, there wasn't that much of an ethnic um dimension to it, I don't I mean a religious dimension to it, I don't think
0: so let's let's walk us through the 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 civil war which starts in 2002 bagbo uh lauren bagbo is is elected uh in 2000 after the the coup uh, a military coup house bedier in 1999 um and things seem to go south pretty quickly the war kind of the, the war breaks out really for you know in a, in a big way in 2002 um what were i mean you know was it sort of um mainly based in, on you know this sort of uh, intercommunal tension what, what was there any you know what what aspects of the 2000 election i know uh, you know the water exclusion you know did that play a role uh, as he was still you know sort of ineligible or deemed ineligible under the the Iguarte law um but what were the sort of factors that that led into the the war
1: um so i guess the the 2000 election is is really crucial in terms of uh how the civil war plays out i think um so that election was was between um robert gay who was the uh, the general who'd launched the coup um that ousted bedier um who who was president at the time um and he held that election against Bagbo. Um and he had excluded Watter, as you say, in the terms of um the, the law of Vivoirité, thinking, I think, that um Wattere was going to be his biggest contender and that Bagbo wouldn't pose much of a threat. Um, and so he allowed Bagbo to stand against him in the election. Um I think it was always going to be something of a, a sort of fake election. Um but he realized during the vote counting that uh he was gonna lose the election. Um and so he suspended the vote counting and just declared himself the winner. Um, and obviously the supporters of Bagbo were outraged that this had happened. Um, they believed very strongly that Bagbo had won the election um, and they rose up and pro- protested uh, to such an extent that they forced Gay from power um, and, and he actually had to flee. Um, the problem was that Bagbo had won this election, but the supporters of Wattera uh was still really angry that their, their candidate had not been allowed to stand in, in the election at all. Um, And they claimed that because the election had been so, um, so flawed that they needed to have a rerun of, of the vote, Um, obviously Bagbo thinking, okay, great. I'm president um, decided that that wasn't such a great idea. Um, and that led to several days of sort of unprecedented violence in Cote d'Ivoire, um, in which there was a massacre of, of 57 pro-Watera supporters in, in Yopigon a district district of Abidjan. Um, and so that election really set the stage for what Bagbo's, uh, Bagbo's uh, time in power was going to look like. Um, he sort of set off on the wrong foot with the supporters of, of Watera who were were furious that, that he would refused to rerun the election. Um, and Bagbo also sort of just continued this policy of Vivoirité, obviously following on from the fact that he didn't want to rerun the election against Lethara, Um, And he exacerbated the policies that Bédier had already introduced, um, continuing to marginalize northerners from um, from jobs um, and, and forcing them to carry identity cards with them. Um, and he was not really very wise about this because the army, which had already played a a sort of considerable role in Ivorian politics up until this point, um, had quite a lot of uh, northern soldiers in it who were frustrated with these policies. um, And he wasn't really doing anything to uh, quell their anxieties. Um, And so uh, no, no, no sooner had he taken power than uh, he faced a a coup attempt in 2001, um, when uh, soldiers from the north tried to overthrow him. Now that coup attempt failed, um, but those those um, soldiers fled and, and a lot of them took refuge in Burkina Faso um, and from there began plotting another coup attempt, um, which then took place in September 2002, um, those soldiers failed to overthrow Bagbo, but they did manage to take over um, cities in the north of Cote d'Ivoire um, and establish a kind of uh, rebel stronghold in, in Bouake, in the center of the country. Um, and yeah these northern soldiers then formed the force nouvelle um a little bit later and and ruled the north of the country from from then until 2010 um these rebel groups uh yeah as i say they, they sort of merged into the force nouvelle and i think at the start of the war they, there were around 20,000 of them um and they divided the north of the country into 10 different zones each run by by a zone commander um which then got shortened to com zone um And throughout this period, you see that um, the, like the international community is really encouraging uh, Cote d'Ivoire to hold elections because that seems to have been like the sort of the initial trigger for all of this anger towards Bagbo Um, and Bagbo just keeps denying uh, these attempts, There's sort of repeated, repeated peace deals um, that fall through, repeated attempts to demobilize the rebels, uh, which also fall through. Um, there's never really any solid commitment from either Bagbo or Guillaume Soro, who heads up the the Force Nouvelle, um, to follow through on on these peace agreements um, and to fully dis- demobilize uh, the rebel groups that that are involved. Um, and during this time, Bagbo is really building up um, militia support in the south and the west. Um, he famously uh, begins this group called the Young Patriots, um, who are very violent and uh, you know sort of um undertake uh, operations on his behalf in in various parts of the country against um uh against those who are opposed to him um and yeah essentially the attempts to to hold elections just keep falling through um until finally in 2010 um he's he's forced to hold this election against against Ouattara. um and when we get to that election, it kind of seems inevitable that it's going to result in violence because none of the issues that have, have led to this this conflict emerging um, have been resolved. And, and so many rebel groups are still in operation. Um, the power balance is, is quite sort of um, equal at this point. I mean, Bagbo has the army, but um, they're quite weak, quite divided, not least because Bagbo has been funding loads of militias because he's afraid that the army might overthrow him. Um, and then obviously on the side of the, of, of water, ultimately, um, you have the force Nouvelle, uh, who are also quite weak. Um, but you know, there's quite a lot of them, um, and they have control over the north of the country. Um, and in the end, the, the force Nouvelle have also the support of, of France and the UN, um, who, who come to to support water in, in the in the sort of result of the election, um. So this election is held in, in very tense circumstances. Um, right before the 2010 election is held, uh, Bagbo actually says in an interview with uh, Jeune Afrique um, that the outcome of the, the election is um, either we win or we win, um, which kind of epitomizes the, the winner takes all atmosphere that, that existed in the run-up to that election. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that poll was kind of, inevitably going to result in in some violence i think
0: so uh, uh, before we get into the 2010 election like the in the, the the violence in the aftermath i i want to uh detour a, a little bit um because you you brought this up um one of the themes it seems to me in sort of West Africa, the Sahel, basically any place that's been a French colony at any time in the past, uh, (laughs) is that the French government never really entirely lets go of these places. Uh, So I wanted to get your take on uh, sort of France's intervention in the Civil War and its role since then uh, in Cote d'Ivoire and whether uh, it's played a productive role or a not so productive role or, you know, kind of, uh, neither talk, talk a little
1: bit about that. Uh, it's a very, very controversial question. Um, so <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think, um, France's role in the, in the civil war is quite an interesting one because, um, you can accuse France or you like of interfering um, but I think they actually played a pretty productive role in terms of preventing there being much more violence than than there could have otherwise been. Um, France upheld the ceasefire line in the center of the country um from when um the civil war first broke out and they prevented the rebels marching um on uh Abidjan. Um and so that maintained a sort of semblance of peace in the country at least until so the UN mission was deployed in two thousand and four. Um, but obviously the war had broken out in 2002. So you had at least two years where the French were kind of responsible for there not being more fighting going on in the country. Um, I think France's role becomes a little bit more complicated um, when you when you get into the civil war where, so in, in 2004, um, Bagbo famously decided that because uh, supposedly the rebel groups were not uh, demobilizing in the north after after a peace deal had been struck briefly, um, in 2003, he decided that it, it was the right thing to do to begin airstrikes on um, on northern Cote d'Ivoire, um, and he actually bombed a French military base in in Bouake, um, which was said to be a mistake. Um, but obviously, the French did not take kindly to this, um, not least <laughs> because they were supposed to be neutral at the time, um, and they retaliated by destroying the French uh, by destroying the um, Ivorian air force. Um, and that led to, I mean, Bagbo then from that point on created this idea that, you know, the whole problem in, in Cote d'Ivoire was, was the, the, the fault of the French. Um, and that if the French left, then everything would be better. Um, and the country would be unified again. Um, and there were considerable protests against the French, you know, French business, um, French businesses being looted. Um, I think France actually had to evacuate um, a significant number of French residents, uh, from Abidjan at the time. Um, and, you know, like French, French, uh, um, very much seen to have like interfered in the conflict and, um, yeah, Bagbo really cultivated this sense that it was, it was France's fault. Um, I think that's kind of unjustified really. Um, I think that ultimately France wanted peace, um, in the country, um, as much as you could say that you know, like a lot of the land policies and things that, that uh, occurred at, at the beginning of Buffet-Boigny's presidency had maybe come out of colonial rule. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the, France's role during the civil war was not necessarily a bad one. I think the, the controversial thing is is what happened after the 2010 election and whether it was right for France to then intervene on on the side of Ouattara, um and to help Wethera to take power. But I think by that point, France had decided that you know, this conflict has gone on long enough. We now have a presidential candidate who, um, was formerly very senior in the IMF is very well, well respected within the international community has, has very good, uh, technocratic credentials. Um, why, why would we not put him in power, <laughs> especially okay. since, especially since Bagbo had, um, had been kind of, uh, uh, seeking to, to cause havoc towards French interests during his presidency. I mean, it was kind of obvious what, what France would choose to do at that point. Um, I think, you know, it's worrying now to see that, you know, when Water came out and said that he wouldn't stand for a third term, um, Macron, the French president, he said uh, this was, you know, What what a great thing that the Ivorian leader is going to stand down and pass power onto the next generation. And what a great sign of a democracy in West Africa that this would happen. And then when Wattahar turned around and said, actually, uh, I am going to stand, France didn't really say very much. Um, And I mean, the US has been the same. It's been very uh, quiet on the fact that Wattahar is standing for a third term. Um, But I I think that 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 kind of dynamic is perhaps... uh, it's kind of inevitable, um, I think, especially given the state of the Sahel at the moment and the fact that Islamist extremism is kind of trying to expand out into coastal West Africa. I think that, you know, international interests in in Cote d'Ivoire are are prominent at the moment and they want stability. And and for them, I think uh, Waka symbolizes that.
0: So we've gotten to the the 2010 election. I wonder... um, so uh, this was really—I mean, the 2010 election was really the 2005 election that had been postponed uh, over and over again by Bagbo. Uh, well, it was almost more.
1: the 2000 election, really. <laughs>
0: yeah, really. I mean,
1: <laughs> in a sense,
0: that's 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 right. Yeah, uh, um, Water finally is, was allowed to run. Uh, the he he survived the first round went got into the he and bagbo uh, were the two survivors of the first round they've run in the uh second round and uh bagbo just kind of declares victory from what i understand and and that's highly heavily disputed um there's a lot of you know a lot of people convinced that water had actually won um talk about where what what happens next this is sort of part two in a sense of the civil war although it doesn't last very long um but but take us take us through this kind of uh last year or so of magbo's time and power
1: <laughs> right um yeah i mean actually it's the it's the most intense period of violence that that occurs during the civil war i guess um but it, yeah it only takes place over uh between december and april um 2010 2011. um so what happens is actually that. The electoral commission comes out and declares as the winner uh, with 54% of the vote, um, and then the constitutional court says that the electoral commission has no authority to declare that, and that actually Bagbo has won the election. Um, and obviously, this this sparks a whole load of violence between um, supporters of Wattera, supporters of Bagbo, um, and the the Force Nouvelle. Uh, begin to think that this is their moment to, to capitalize, um, they, they start a sort of march towards the capital, Um, and yeah, with the assistance of, um, with, of French troops and and the UN troops, they're they're able to then, um, arrest Bagbo and, um, install water in power. Um, but obviously as significant amounts of violence take place, um, between those kind of that four month period. Um, several massacres of, um, supporters of both sides take place. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's very much a, a climate of fear, particularly in, in Abidjan, um, a lot of people kind of, um, hiding away, hoping that they won't be targeted by, by Bagbo militias. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very scary time for Ivorians. I think, um, while it wasn't, wasn't clear who, who was actually going to take power and um, who was going to be safe and who who would not be.
0: Bagbo, uh, you know, winds up being ousted from power, Watara takes over, obviously, Bagbo then was, um, you know, bundled off to the International Criminal Court. Can you talk a little bit about uh, his case? Because that's sort of an interesting situation. He was actually acquitted. uh, But I think, you know, prosecutors are trying to refile the case against him.
1: Right, so it's an interesting one, so he and um Bla who was the head of the the young patriots, the militia group I was talking about um they were both sent off to the the i c c um bla was sent in uh two thousand and fourteen um Bag-Bagba was sent not long after he was initially arrested, so in november two thousand and eleven um and yeah they faced trial for for crimes against humanity that were committed during the the conflict um and um, I guess this is, this is one of the issues that the ICC has is that there just wasn't enough evidence um, that tied Bagbo or Blegude specifically to um, the crimes that they were supposed to have committed, um, supposed to have ordered. Um, I think that, you know, there was evidence that these crimes took place, but it wasn't necessarily clear that they had been ordered to take place by either Bagbo or Blegude. Um And yeah, they have... Since been acquitted, um, I think yeah they're trying to um, trying to get a better case against them, um, and the ICC is now trying to investigate um, the those on side of on the side of Wetha who committed crimes during uh, the conflict, which is an interesting development because um, obviously uh, previously um, the ICC had been accused of being quite biased in terms of like its approach to um, the violence that took place in Cote d'Ivoire and why was it only investigating Bagbo and, and his um, cronies if um, you know the Ouattara side and and the Force Nouvelle had committed committed a lot of crimes during that conflict as well. Um, so, I mean, the ICC is sort of playing a role in kind of post-conflict justice, I suppose, um, but that role is quite controversial in that um, I think a lot of Ivorians feel that in order for there to be reconciliation in Cote d'Ivoire, there needs to be a return of Bagbo to to Cote d'Ivoire um, and there needs to be uh, like, th- there needs to be justice um, for those who, who committed crimes on the other side of the conflict. Um, but the fact that Bagbo has been disallowed from returning to Cote d'Ivoire and that, that he can't get a passport now to come back. Um, these are all things that kind of add to resentment towards the government. Um, and I think uh, don't really help with reconciliation to be honest. I think the, the I mean, I. I there's also the fact that the ICC is is very distant from Cote d'Ivoire, and that you know even if even if anybody was to be convicted there, would that really would that really help with reconciliation within Cote d'Ivoire itself? Um, that doesn't really say that much about like how the judicial system has changed and whether whether there's still impunity within Cote d'Ivoire, um, which I'm undoubtedly is. So um, I'm not sure that its role has been totally helpful.
0: Talk about. What are his presidency um, over the the last nine, I guess, years since he, he's really been, uh, you know, serving? He was elected, you know, obviously in twenty ten. Um, has he been able to um, kind of really deal with? the underlying tensions that that created the the violence that, that kind of sparked the violence in, in the 2000s um or as it sort of i mean he was reelected in 2015 it seems uh, fairly handily um you know talk about that election if if there are you know any uh, issues there uh but you know how much has have the these tensions that we've been talking about actually been addressed versus sort of just kind of stuffed down and kind of, you know, stu- <laughs> uh, swept under the rug maybe a little bit. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I think Watara, I mean, being, uh, being a former um, very senior official at the IMF um, and having a great knowledge of the international community, I think he really brought to the presidency this sense of like how to convince the international community that you are doing a good job with reconciliation and demobilizing and disarming militias. Um, he gives off a very good impression, I think, um, and he has been widely praised for um, his ability to um, engender this, this post-conflict recovery. Um, international commentators are always talking about um, the fact that he has been able to foment this, this consistently high GDP growth rate. Um, it's been sort of over 8% on average, uh, for several years. Um, he invested massively in, in infrastructure projects, um, and, and it is kind of remarkable what he, what he's achieved. I mean, is one of the only countries I know in West Africa, where you can go to sort of very remote towns and find that there are, um, paved roads, almost everywhere, um, you don't really tend to have problems with electricity um development has been has been pretty pretty effectively dealt with um over the course of Wathar's presidency not least if you consider that um you know for for nine years this country was split in half with like barely any development taking place at all um but you do frequently hear over and say that you know we we can't eat the roads um you know if there isn't really thorough reconciliation and there isn't um an attempt to provide access to jobs for both, you know, for, for all ethnic groups, then this development doesn't really mean that much to us. Um, this isn't, you know, you can't just develop the country and ignore all of the problems that have led to us uh, being divided for so long. Um, and I think part of the reason why you now see that there are so many tensions surrounding this election is because so many of these problems haven't been dealt with. Um, I mean. He did all the right things on the on on paper. Um in two thousand and twelve he set up the um DDR initiative uh, to de to demobilise, disarm, and reintegrate um all of the ex combatants that were involved in the conflict between two thousand uh, and ten two thousand two and two thousand and ten. Um so that included around seventy thousand ex combatants who were supposedly um demobilized and disarmed. Um, although I know a lot of ex combatants who would disagree with that with that figure. Um and then you know, also in 2012, the government set up a, um, a truth commission to try and, um, unearth the truth about the conflict. Um, and they, you know, they spoke to thousands of, of, um, victims to try and get their, their view on, um, what had caused the violence and, um, try and ascertain who were the victims and who, who was, um, entitled to reparation reparations. Um, but I don't know that any of these measures have really thoroughly already addressed um, either the the national identity issue or the land ownership issue, um, or even like I think of one of the major problems that has often uh, been very problematic for Cote d'Ivoire has been the the armed forces and the repeated mutinies within the armed forces. Um, to a certain extent, I think Ouattara has has got a handle on that much better now, but I think you know the army is is still quite divided um, and yeah, there there is, there is a lot of, there are a lot of problems that um, water has sort of tried to sweep under the rug while holding up a, a, um, a template of a perfect uh, program to address them to the international community, but not actually tackling the problems, um, underpinning them. I mean, in particular, if you consider the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, when that completed its report, it was never, um, it was never published. So like the, the report was submitted to the government, and the government held on to it for several years afterwards, and then, you know, finally admitted that it would release some of it. Um, but it was heavily censored. And so, I mean, what is the point in having a truth and reconciliation commission, um, which doesn't end up giving a version of the truth to the, <laughs> the Ivorian public? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and these are the kind of issues that you have with these programs that were designed supposedly to get to the bottom of of what happened in the conflict. I mean I guess one of the biggest issues with reconciliation is that, you know, the people who supported Wattara in the conflict, the Force Nouvelle, were heavily implicated in in the crimes that were also committed during the conflict. So if the government undertook a proper reconciliation drive and and, you know, unearthed the truth about the conflict, that would involve Admitting that people who supported the government were involved in these crimes, and uh, I guess Wathura hasn't been overly enthusiastic about that prospect, um, not least because I think he might have had to pros- he might have had to prosecute those people then uh, for the crimes they were involved in, and uh, you know his his power dependent on depended a lot on their support. Um, so I think yeah, there's there are a lot of uh, ongoing difficulties that haven't really been resolved by by Watere's presidency, much as he has. Uh, very much convinced the international community that he's he's done a good job with with reconciliation um i think if you if you want to talk about the, the 2015 election um, i would say that that vote was not particularly significant in that okay wasera won with with 84% of the vote but um you know that that poll was boycotted by the the Ivorian popular front which is uh Laurent party um and um the other main opposition party, the, the PDCI, which is Henri Hernan party, um, they agreed that year that they would, um, support watterer um, in, in return for watterer's party, um, later supporting the PDCI with, with its candidate in a, in a subsequent election, which as it turns out, didn't transpire. Um, but you know, so watterer was basically standing in an election against nobody. Um, so, so it's, it's not all that surprising that he won. Such a significant <laughs> proportion of the vote um and I think really the two thousand and fifteen election is maybe not uh not a particularly good uh, indication of what will happen in twenty twenty um, or like how easy the twenty twenty election will be for for water.
0: so well that's that was gonna be my next question. I mean, what is the outlook for this election? I get the sense that there's sort of an assumption that water is gonna win um could there be another surprise like the 2000 election um you know what do you he's running against bedier i I guess is the sort of most prominent uh, opposition candidate um how do you see things kind of playing out
1: um so i think that the the forthcoming election is an interesting one because um it seems that the opposition has formed this kind of coalition against waterer um, so you have Bedier and and Soro and and Bagbo all agreeing that they will form and and several smaller parties agreeing that they will form this this coalition against Ouattara's third term because it's a violation of the constitution, um, and they they've basically said that they they are uniting to prevent this third term, um, and they've called for a dissolution of the electoral commission, a dissolution of the constitutional court, and a postponement of the election for three months, and the withdrawal of Ouattara's candidacy. Um, and if they don't, um, you know, if they don't acquire these, these things, then, um, well, they've already said that they're going to launch a campaign of civil disobedience. Um, now on the one hand you think, okay, well, there's so many parties against water, um, and a lot of big names, um, on, on the opposition side. Um, a lot of those candidates come from different parts of the country as well. So, So supposedly, you know, they can draw support from, um, the North, the West and the center of the country um, you know, that that should put up a pretty good fight against Wattera. Um, on the other hand, I think that um, the opposition has been quite uh, a little bit useless in terms of getting together some kind of a strategy. Um, they're very clear about what they are against, but they're not really very clear about what they are for. Um, and I think that there's very little idea of what they will do if those demands that they've called for are not met. Um, it doesn't look likely that any of those demands will be met um are are they going to boycott the election and if so i think you know water walks it basically um i can't really see that the supporters of any of the other um candidates are going to be overly enthusiastic about voting for Bedier. not i mean bedier is you know for a lot of these people bedier was um one of their their key adversaries during during um the 1990s um, and early 2000s. So it's strange for them to now be considering voting for them. Um, you know, northerners voting for Bédier is, is slightly bizarre when you consider that he was the, the architect of the Voirite policy. Um, so it's unclear really how, how much of a fight the opposition is really capable of putting up against uh, Wattara, who, you know, he's a, he's a very obvious household name. Um he is in charge of the biggest party. He has the most funding available to him um and he has presided over this period of of relative peace and stability for the last nine years um and I mean, as much as it hasn't really been shared out among Ivorians, you know there has been significant economic growth and and some development initiatives so I think Watter goes into this election very much the favorite, and that's particularly the case because um he has control over the institutions that are charged with overseeing the election. So <laughs> he's also become increasingly authoritarian. So I get the sense that, you know, even if, even if it was closer than we might imagine, like I don't really see Wattera not allowing himself to win. Um, and unlike in 2010, I don't think that, that there's anybody who's going to come to the rescue of the opposition should Wattera sort of steal the vote. I think, um, you know, France is very happy for Wattera to remain in power. Um, I don't think, I don't think that any of the regional groupings would, would undertake any, any missions against, uh, against Wathera. Um, they are also, they also have sort of a vested interest in stability in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, it's only really, you know, if the armed forces were to turn against him, um, that would be the only really outcome where I think that, yeah, that maybe, maybe he might lose his grip on power. But, um, I think that it's quite likely that the election will be uh, won either legitimately or unfairly by (laughs) Wattara.
0: Whatever it takes, I guess. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I was going to ask, I mean, has there been any international, I mean, you've said, you know, France has been quiet, the United States has been quiet since Wattara announced that he was uh, standing for a third term. Has there been any international... Uh, comment uh, from the African Union, from uh, ECOWAS, from from any, I mean, or from, you know, any, you know, th- those are the region, the main regional bodies, I guess. Uh, has there been any comment about this from from abroad?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the so ECOWAS, um, the African Union and the UN have all been calling for sort of free and fair elections. Um, they've even just been um, trying to undertake some sort of a dialogue with the president um and trying to encourage this to be um as legitimate a process as it can be i think um and you also have had the like international crisis group um has come out saying that um the government's behavior is unacceptable um and obviously as i said the amnesty international calling on uh, the government to stop using quasi militias to put down anti-government demonstrations um so you have had you know, these kind of like periodic statements from people, um, sort of, you get the sense that people are, are opposed to Watara's increasingly authoritarian ways. Um, but I think that won't really change the the political dynamics of the situation. Um, and the fact that Watara is probably for most people in the international community, I mean, unless you're international crisis group or Amnesty International, I think, I think Watara represents something that you know the African Union and ECOWAS will be very much in favor of which is stability in a very important economic powerhouse in in West Africa at a time when a lot of West Africa is looking quite unstable um and yeah i think you know that they're, they're very keen to say like okay we, we do want there to be free and fair elections like this is the norm that we're trying to uphold within West Africa um but would they do anything more than that like if the election were to be contested I don't think that they would get involved in, in any way, you know, I don't think they would send in, uh, troops, for example. I think that would be definitely off the agenda. Um, and I guess the opposition, you know, like their their recourse to, to claim that the election is rigged, which, I mean, I'm almost certain that they will claim the election has been rigged because they've been claiming that the election will be rigged for for months already. Um, they they don't really have anywhere else to go. I mean, the constitutional court is, as they say, biased in favor of the government. The electoral commission is biased in favor of the government. Um, I I can't really see what they resort to doing um, should they lose the election, which which I feel like they will.
0: So uh, one of the one of the things you mentioned earlier was the um, sort of pressure created by. Islamist groups that are active in the interior of the Sahel, kind of pushing their way out toward coastal West Africa. How big a concern is that in Cote d'Ivoire? And if there is tension after the election, and as you say, there's no obvious channel for the opposition to go to, to kind of legitimately have its concerns aired, which raises the possibility of sort of uh, just kind of a generalized unrest. Um, is, Is that something to be concerned about? um, moving forward.
1: Um, I mean, I guess I think that the, the concern about that is diminished by keeping water in power. I think it would be much more concerning if, if, you know, if, if the election was to result in, you know, severe, severe unrest and, um, uh, you know, like a period of, of great uncertainty in Kota when it wasn't clear who was running the country, um, and that there was to be uh, there would be extensive violence, um, you know, going on for several months. Um, I think in that kind of scenario, you would start to be concerned that that opens up a kind of power vacuum for um, Islamist extremist groups to to really expand southwards. Um, but I think in the event that Wattara wins the election in, in the first round and, and there are, you know, significant protests and intercommunal violence, but it's very clear where the uh, reins of power lie. Um, I think in that scenario, then maybe we don't have quite so much to fear in terms of, uh, the expansion of these groups. I think that water is probably, I mean, um, unfortunately I think he's, he's probably the best man to be in power for, for this situation. Um, and I mean, obviously yeah, you had in in June, there was the attack by, um, Jainim, um, in Cofolo, um, in Northern Cote d'Ivoire, um, which. You know was was deeply concerning and indicated an ability to to carry out attacks on ivorian soil um and for these groups to yeah to continue uh, moving southwards. Um, but I don't think that whereas previously maybe we were kind of predicting that if the election was to result in in months of unrest and a uh, lack of clarity surrounding who was running the country, um that this would be a really worrying scenario for for these groups to move in and to take over Cote d'Ivoire in the same way that, that perhaps they've been um su- has been suggested that they're doing um in Burkina Faso and Mali I think currently the Ivorian government is looking stronger and stronger um and its control over the military has become a much, much stronger since uh, the series of mutinies in 2017 as well um, so I think that that scenario lends itself to to more stability, I guess, um, as much as it's kind of unpalatable to human rights groups and uh, for democracy. I think uh, potentially in the in the context of um, the expansion of these groups, maybe it, maybe it's a good thing. I want to sort of
0: uh, I want to take us out on a more on a on a broader note, and uh, we've said there, there's been. Uh, There hasn't been much, it seems like, of of an international comment on these elections, except uh, yesterday, the U.S. State Department issued an amazing press (laughs) statement about this titled, Upcoming Elections in Africa. (laughs) I know I said this to you yesterday, and it's just the most hysterical uh, two-paragraph comment oh, God. on the nations of africa and the, the <laughs> conduct of elections is important for africans no distinction of like which countries we're talking about <laughs> which parts of africa we're talking about just a sort of general sort of africa is a country statement from the united states government which you love to see uh, just a wonderful thing
1: yeah deeply um, worrying <laughs>
0: there is uh, there is however this this repeated kind of discussion of what I've seen called the third term syndrome, uh, where presidents uh, in heads of state in Africa try to finagle their way past constitutional term limits. Um, This seems to me, has always seemed to me to be very kind of overly generalized um, uh, you know, there are cases of this happening in Burundi and Uganda. Uh, Joseph Kabila tried to do it in uh, the DRC and and finally kind of cut a deal to to maintain some power but not stay in in office. Um, uh, but these are all unique situations. There is one case, however, in in the region in West Africa, Alpha Conde in Guinea. Uh, who is doing basically the same you know making the same play that that water is making to to hold on to uh to continue into a third term do you think there's any general conclusion that you can draw from any of these uh cases or is that as i suspect kind of a a a, a simplification uh, on the part of for example, the United States government, which really doesn't uh, have a have a concern to get into the nitty gritty of African politics.
1: Um, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's it's you know it's very misplaced to try and generalize across. Um, I mean, certainly across all of Africa, but you know, even within West Africa, it would be a mistake to say that the case in Guinea is the same as the case in Cote d'Ivoire, or um, even I think uh, the same the same thing happened in Togo. Um, you know these these situations are all very different and all require um individual analyses um but I think you know we can say that you know certainly within West Africa I think that there is a tendency away from okay obviously recently we <laughs> recently we saw a coup in um in Mali uh, but there has been over the last sort of 10 10 years i would say like a, a sort of drift away from coups and more towards um presidents trying to hold on to power through these kind of bizarre amendments to constitutions and claims that term limits have been reset since the constitution was amended and uh, that seems to be much more the trend um, these days and I think you see like a lot of um, civil society organizations claiming that this is like a, a new type of coup that the, the government that's in power is is seizing its own power again um, by uh by yeah changing the constitution to to suit its will um I think the worrying thing about Cote d'Ivoire is that this kind of power grab was never really that obvious. I think when the Constitution was amended in 2016 um some civil society groups were saying that this was an attempt by Ouattara to to hold on to power for longer um notably the the 2016 constitutional amendment meant that um, he removed the age limit um, on um, the presidential candidate, which meant that now Wattera can stand for a election. Uh, whereas if he hadn't removed that, um, then he wouldn't be allowed to stand uh, this year in the election. Um, and at the time, lots of civil society groups were saying, "Yeah, this is an attempt by Wattera to to main, maintain power beyond his two-term limit." And I think a lot of people were kind of like, "Really? I don't. I, I can't see Wattera doing that." You know, at the time he seemed like a, quite a a Democratic president, um, very much uh, a Western donor darling, um, sort of uh, very much in favor of of liberal Western ways, um, and yeah, now you see him sort of undertaking moves that previously, yeah, you would have associated with presidents like for Nasingbe in in Togo, who's you know sort of a longtime um, authoritarian leader, um, and that's kind of worrying. I think that suggests that okay, if you, if you take power and in, in, uh, I, I, if you start off on a very democratic path and, and you make a name for yourself for being this uh, democratic Western donor, darling, um, then over time you can gradually slide towards these more authoritarian ways and nobody will do anything about it. Um if if you've if you've made a good name for yourself then then that option is very much available to you. Right.
0: sort of uh if you if you do you know if you're you're a good friend to the West then the West will look the other way basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not fun how that works. It's nice. <laughs> uh, um it's good system. <laughs> All right, so I think um we should we should leave things there. Um I would be Grateful if to to have you on again uh, at some point, maybe you know. Hopefully, things will not go uh, too far south after the election. <laughs> I don't know. I, hopefully, um, but to talk about the the aftermath and and you know what happens, um, I would also uh, well, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many other aspects of Ivorian uh, history that that would be fascinating to discuss. But let's let's leave it here. Uh, and see what happens uh, later this month. And uh, again, Jessica Moody, thank you so much uh, for being on the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me, that was great.
0: All right, Uh, once again, I would very much like to thank Jessica Moody for coming on the program. And I think really uh, doing a fantastic job of, of explaining the context of what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire right now. And also, uh, I'd like to thank her for being patient with me. It's been, we've been like discussing, we we're talking about doing this interview for a couple of months now, and she's had to put up with me kind of uh, arranging things just so. Uh, so I thank her for her patience uh, in that respect. Uh, again, the election is October 31st. There could be a runoff. Uh, I, I don't think that date has been scheduled, and I'm uh, skeptical that it's going to be required, um, but we'll see what happens. Um, as for us, uh, again, the website is fx.substack.com. Be sure to check us out. Uh, and until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.